Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, and good night, wherever you are in the world, and welcome back to another episode of Endurance Chat. I'm Michael Zalvari. Joining me today, I have Cookie Monster FL, Austin Zetsman, and Chris Rosser97. Good afternoon, lads. Well, good evening for you guys. How? Good morning, mate. How have you been? Well, been doing well. It's been a while. It has been a while. It's been two months. How about you, Chris? I mean, two whole IMSA races have passed, and one Ela Mesh race, WEC race. It's it's been a while. We've been slacking, a lack of work ethic here. But don't worry, we're gonna pick things back up. Maybe that's you that's just been slacking, Chris. Life has been hard. Oh, that's what I'm asking. Oh no, you're throwing around, bud. Yeah, we're 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 throwing we're throwing knives early. All right, classic, classic. No, um, prepare myself. Everyone, get your get your get your hands up and ready. We're good. We're going on guard. No, it's it's been super hard to organize uh, everyone together in the same space at the same time. So it's been a little while. So we're we're, we're trying. We're doing our best, and and life just does that thing where it gets in the way. But part of that life has also been going to races for for cookies, Austin. Tell us about Sebring. How was it? How was the, the, the fanfare, the experience? Did you know that you your campsite was on the WEC backstage pass thing, access all areas that they're doing? I didn't until you showed me uh, in, a, in a wonderful display of uh, insider knowledge uh, when these videos come out because I, I don't know. I think I was even preparing myself to watch these because I think we had posts about them on the subreddit about them doing these all access stuff but i didn't realize that they were going to be doing it about green park and yeah i guess <laughs> there was some footage of our campsite on there and then uh yeah i think they used like some footage of like 2019 uh and but me being on turn 10 but then they interviewed some some friends of mine that are in turn 10 that was really cool and uh yeah so it was another awesome year uh, had kind of everything again but it would if it's super sebring. Yeah, so. absolutely. So, so next year when they do the same thing again, you're going to get on the the uh, access all areas. You're going to be interviewed. And you're going to tell uh, spread the word about the the good people at R slash WEC, right? Um, yeah, that's if uh, that's if they use any footage of mine. Because again, remember, I'm the most long winded person in uh, <laughs> man. Um, so their ability to use actual sentences of mine would be very hard up or hard pressed, I should say. So. Yeah, uh, but no, it was crazy. Um, there was just, just ever, like, again, it's just Sebring craziness, just things that it's just like, of course that's Sebring. And then it's also like things like, of course it's Sebring, but what the, what, you know, what the hell, uh, what the expletive or to that effect? Because yeah, uh, there was some really weird stuff that was there this year in the, in the infield. So but, you've sent through some photos to both of us and in the, the podcast <laughs> chat. Um, one of them, the first one is, uh, you you guys at group, uh, at group 10, uh, turn 10, hanging out with Jackie X. That means that you've hung out with like both parts of the Porsche 962 dynasty over the past few years with like Derek Bell at the supermarket and now Jackie X at turn 10. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's crazy. Uh, I keep winning multiple, uh, time, uh, multiple Lamar winners, um, except for Tom Christensen who decided to. See, meet every single person that I know uh, that goes to Sebring, uh, except me because I decided to take a nap at like 10 p.m. at night. Uh, <laughs> so that always haunt me. But yeah, I have now met Jackie X and uh, and Derek Bell. Jackie, I guess, hadn't been to the track since he won last one in 1970. Uh, what was it? Two. Jeez, um, yeah. 
I believe, or 1970 with Mario and Dreddy, I think. Or not, yeah, that would be 70. Um, but yeah, he hadn't been back to the track since then, so it was like 52 years or something like that. It was crazy. Jeez. Uh, but yeah, they, um, <clears throat> I don't know, uh, they were just shuttling him around to different parts of the track to watch the infield. I think there was a practice or qualifying session for IMSA or something like that going on, so he was just kind of walking around, and then um, uh, he went in to turn 10s and said hi there, so... Um, it just turn 10 just has its status that everybody, if you have the opportunity to go to the infield, they always direct you to go there. So, um, and we now are kind of camping so close to them that we just kind of end up being near them. And, uh, yeah, so it was, it was really, it was a cool experience, especially because this is the first time I was on the fence, like camping on the fence this year. Um, we've done it at Petite and I've done that road America as well, but, um, and I guess now at Daytona sort of. Um, but at Seabrink, it's it, it's really cool, especially being by turn ten. There's some guys next to us as well that do um, um, old school like whiteboard with uh, dry erase markers, and mm-hmm. they do the whole race in terms of uh, um, each class and the driver or the car numbers for each hour. And then on the bottom, they have like you just like blurbs for what's what's going on. So it's kind of just like a run sheet for the entire race. Nice, and, that's really uh, really cool. Yeah, and they they have their whole like like a CB radio, like some ham radio thing where they basically can like tap into a bunch of the radios that are um, at the the track radios, so they get a lot of the comms of the uh, official um, radio comms. So it's really cool. Like it's they have this whole, it's it's just this whole thing, and they're they've been here for like fifty like forty five fifty years, and they just have been doing this for like the last thirty, and they're they're just like kind of nerds like us, like racing nerds like us, but just a little bit older and. Uh, yeah, just to camp next to them, and they camp next to Turn Ten. It kind of felt a little bit more community, and uh, yeah, that was really neat. So, um, yeah, I had a lot of fun this year. Yeah, that's really really cute. Um, I I do miss the the whole camping community aspect of being at racetracks. It's something I haven't experienced for a while. Um, and you were almost on the fence about not going this year. Uh, so happy happy days that you managed to get out there. Yeah, yeah, a little lingering back injury always sometimes make plays havoc with plans. But yeah, it was uh, it it was kind of a question of what day I would show up, and I decided to just try to tough it out and try to do the whole the whole thing, and it was fine. So um, yeah, and it turned out all right. So I there was just and uh, there was a lot of people coming at least this year that were planning different stuff, and it kind of would have been a bummer if I wasn't there to like kind of help supply some of the uh, requirements for him. Like a couple guys are flying in direct from. Uh, atlanta in uh just a cessna um so they just flew into the airport and uh at sabring international airport yeah and uh our buddy picked him up in an old uh, bm 1982 bmw um like it's an auto track or a uh, autocross car it's uh, i'm trying to remember what, what car it was but it's like bmw coupe like 1970 1982 something like that coupe gorgeous car and he like shows up to the just the airport terminal at Seabring to pick him up and just wheel him another mile to get back to our campsite but just it was super surreal like I, it was it was great yeah it was it was super cool my buddy's all into flying and um the first time that I camped with them in 2014 um the guy that owns this BMW he he owned a twin um like a twin king um plane so it's a little bit bigger than the Cessna and he flew in with our buddy uh, MJD Moray yeah. uh, down to uh, Sebring. And he flew them around uh, at the start. Like the, him, Marcus, uh, my buddy, uh, and MJD Moray flew around Sebring at the start. And so he's been like, I want to fly down to Sebring like, and land <laughs> there and do all that stuff. And he finally did it this year. And 
said it was awesome. And his flight instructor that flew with him was like, dude, this is crazy. Uh, I want to do it again after like sleeping out in my, in the tent or uh, in our carport canopy thing. Yeah. Cause his, all of his stuff got soaked after a rainstorm. So <laughs> he had, he had nothing dry and I had a zero gravity chair to kind of like lean back and you can kind of sort of sleep on there. But we're like, we're right next to a main walking path on Sebring. And he basically is just sleeping right next to the fence that separates our campsite from the walking path, then the fence to the racetrack. So like morning warm up, warm up and stuff. He's like 60, you know, like 10, I'd say like 15 meters from the track. And he's just sleeping in a, you know, like with a, with a sort of a blanket on him trying to sleep. And it's slightly foggy. He's just like, dude, that's the perfect christening of Sebring for him. So yeah, yeah. it was... It was crazy, yeah, yeah. Um, it never fails to disappoint. There's a there was a race car that was turned into a grill. Um, <laughs> what? There was there was uh, beer taps that was that was where the gas um, um, refill was. It was a NASCAR. It was like a Gen three NASCAR, and they ripped the engine out. Apparently, this might have been like a testing crash. It might have been Brad Keselowski's. No, I don't think it was that. But it was, basically, it was a te- there was some crash at Road Atlanta. And it totaled the car. And so the guy was like, oh, I'll just make it into this weird grill thing. And so the entire front where the engine is, is just a huge grill. And then he's got like beer, uh, beer kegs in the trunk on ice. And then there's beer taps coming out where the gas uh, in- intake is uh, on the back of the rear fender. And on the passenger side, because he's left the driver's seat there, on the passenger side is an entire extra seat with a sim rig in it. Oh my gosh. Yeah. That and is. there's like, there's... And there's placement for beer pong um, uh, cups and stuff on the front, like right in front of the windshield. I mean, it's the, it's the whole, it's the whole, not like everything. And apparently that guy somehow knows the guy at turn 10 and they were trying to get it to turn 10, but couldn't get past all the RVs and stuff because everybody was all bobbled in. So it was like right behind our campsite. So we were just like watching them grill and play in this race car, excuse me, <laughs> that's converted into a, uh, converted into like a sim rig. Uh, like Simrig, bro, a Simrig grill. grill, far out. Yeah, yeah holy shit, it's crazy. I need to go to Sebring. <laughs> yeah, man. I'll, I'll, I'm sorry. I'll, I'll. Uh, we have to keep talking about other stuff, but um, I, we convinced a, a British guy that decided to come a week before uh, to come back every single time because, like, he had no idea what was happening. He's just like, I decided to like buy a plane ticket to come to Sebring on a whim. Like, I had the opportunity to do it, so I decided to do it. And uh, rented a car, like went to Walmart, bought a bunch of stuff, like a, a like a, a tent, uh, like chair, uh, air mattress, a uh, uh, cooler, and all that stuff. And basically just decided to wing it. And he camped near us. And like literally the first morning, I think it was Wednesday morning. He's like, and he has the biggest Cockney accent I've ever heard of a British <laughs> person ever. And he's asked me where the you know where the where the washrooms are. And I'm like, oh, British guy, he has no <laughs> idea what's going on. This is gonna be great. So I like point them in the right direction. There's like a, they got old facilities you could use, but they got like a, a nice truck that they rent and bring in. And that was open. I was like, use that one way better. And then I just, he, I kept running into him. And so we just kind of introduced ourselves. I introduced him to turn 10 and the, the British guys that are expats of the UK that live in uh, Florida now. And I mean, he just had the grandest time. We were, we took him to magic bus, got his cherry pop there. Um, I mean, it's so, just so like, what, just, is, what is magic bus? Um, some guy converted a school bus into sort of a bar. Um, it, it, you can just imagine like some of the seats are still left in that of like a school bus, American school bus. And, but then the other half of the seats on the other side are all gutted. And he's got like a bar kind of built out there. 
um, on that side. That's the uh, the bar the bar table. It's it's all like it's all just just crappy, you know, uh, craftsmanship. Just terrible. Um, <laughs> that's part of the charm, the, right? Yeah, yeah. And then he's got pictures. He's got pictures uh like laminated on or like you know um, lacquered on whatever onto the wood for the bar, and they're all just like like uh, naked breasts of women so just terrible and but like that's the whole crazy charm He's, they're just insane guys and then there's like they have a dj kind of station in the back where they've got huge speakers that are playing music all at all hours of the night and um but yeah and so if there's anybody that's never been in the magic bus before they're they basically get like um like a wax little paper cup of um of cherries that are soaked in essentially what i can't there's got to be grain alcohol like it it could be moonshine, but it, it it I'm pretty sure it's grain alcohol, and I think he's even said it once that it's grain alcohol. So it's just a vat of cherries and grain alcohol, and he just scoops some cherries up and then hands it to you. So you just eat grain alcohol soaked cherries. It's the nastiest thing ever, and you have to chase it. And the only thing he has is more liquor. So it's the <laughs> just the most un, unholy amalgamation of all kinds of alcohol and craziness and it's wonderful um but you only go there if you are not sober chris so, chris yeah. is, is that how you ended up in the back of another person's pickup when you went to sebring so basically it was friday night and i was, and i was basically having myself i was treating myself to some uh those captain and cokes uh, it, it was just and i went so before that um, I was basically abducted by this group of people. People from the South was like, it's your first Sabring? And they took me around. <laughs> I met a shirtless person dancing around with a box of wine. Um, a DJ gave me a free Corona seltzer. Tasted like crap. Um, and then and, afterwards... And to, well, hold on. Box, box wine, for anybody who doesn't know, is, is very, very cheap wine. And because it's so cheap they just put it in a plastic bag yeah with like so a, with a nozzle on it for for <laughs> any yeah. australians in the audience that would be a goon sack okay yeah exactly yeah, yeah so yeah. so you're drinking goon which is disgusting but continue oh yeah absolutely I, oh yeah i don't condone this either i went to sleep and i was like and i should have been i i sort of feel bad because i probably should have been like chris you need you need to stay in the campsite but i was like you know what He's up, and I'm not going to stop him. He's got more it's, energy it's, than I do. It's time for him to leave the nest, Cookie. <laughs> yeah, it was. It, it, I, you know what? And again, I feel slightly proud. Even though I feel ashamed. I feel ashamed. <laughs> and so basically, after all that, you know, we met this woman. It's like, oh, you know, I need to get out of here. They have a warrant out for my arrest. I was like, what the? What the hell? <laughs> Jeez, that is That's like, oh, oh, yeah, that always happens. Always. We took we took her to the exit, dropped her off, then they dropped me back to my campsite, and that that was when Cookie was going to bed. This was like what, like midnight, like eleven o'clock. It was like uh, around. Uh, it was eleven. I think it was 11. eleven. Yeah, and I, I, and I think my exact words to Cookie after making myself yet another captain and cook was, "I'm going to explore." <laughs> yes. yes. Oh no. Yep. And I met so so basically. I went across the road, met up with another group of people. Then, like, I only and that was like the next thirty minutes, and then after that, it's just it's just all blacked out. <laughs> and then you woke up in the back of someone else's pickup the next day. Yeah, and when I mean when I say back of pickup, I don't mean like the tailgate open portion towards the back. 
I was in the back seat. Oh my god! And it was like six a.m. and so and I, I had no idea where the hell I was. I so basically I had to look up like um snap maps, which is like the map on Snapchat for the app. <laughs> I was like, oh, I'm in turn seven. Oh my gosh! <laughs> that is. That is Ugh. incredible. Okay, one more story from Sebring, then we should talk about racing. Cookie, you also <laughs> sent us a photo of a champagne bottle, and then yeah. uh, what? What is it? The inside of the the podium club? Did you say it was? Can yeah. You, yeah, can, yeah, yeah, yeah. You were just explaining that to us before we went live. Mm-hmm. Tell us what happened. Uh, uh, Indecisive Rock, who's on uh, IMSA Racing uh, subreddit a bunch, um, he's been camping with us the last few years, and um, he likes to troll around the paddock to look for uh, just discarded parts, like, you know, things in the trash, whatever, so dumpster dives a bit, especially in sports car paddocks, can be kind of beneficial. He found GTLM Ferrari brake pa- uh, brake rotors that were discarded at Daytona. Wow. So he has those. Um, he... The GT4 crash at uh, Sebring in the uh, Michelin Pilot Sports Challenge series. Um, he grabbed a bunch of pieces off that, and I have one of them. So it's like the bottom um, where the door, like the the driver's side door where it closes. There's the underguard like body thing, yeah, like for the the bottom of the door. That is, uh, I have that because um, the car was basically destroyed. So just threw a bunch of shit shit out again because I keep swearing. Uh, <laughs> So, yeah, so he just kept dumpster diving, and so I went with him um, Saturday, like, evening, so um, this is basically, like, into the 12-hour race, and, um, yeah, we ended up finding a bunch of stuff. Um, Found the Alpine, uh, or what we found, I think it is, uh, the winner's champagne bottle, Um, and I believe it was because we were behind some crew members that had the same kind of bottle. And uh, we had some interesting glances from them because <laughs> we ended up finding a champagne bottle. <laughs> and they had some uncorked ones. So it was kind of like, oh, we should trade. But uh, <laughs> yeah, I got ended up getting some banners. Like there was uh, some garage banners that they slide over the, the garages um, through the weekend when the uh, team wants some privacy or whatever. They're like huge banners. Like we're talking meters small and pretty, a lot of meters wide. And uh, yeah, so, we, uh, you know, because they're discarded and thrown out. Um, I put a bunch of stickers that are on the, um, the, the pit lane road, uh, for the, uh, grid, uh, for the WC pre race ceremonies and all that stuff. They have like stickers for all the, uh, the entries. And so they were throwing out. So we grabbed those. The best part was we had, um, passes for IMSA paddock club and WC. Um, I think it was hospitality clubs and that kind of stuff that were discarded they were just like in a couple envelopes that were like laying out in a box so we just like oh okay we'll grab those <laughs> and uh we, we like we got escorted to the imsa paddock uh paddock club which is uh right at the start finish straight uh or start finish line um right on the uh right above overlooking the pits so uh, all air conditioned had some had some food amazing food love the service they're great um shout out to the two uh to the two guys serving some food I think one of those name was Mike, so appreciate that. And, uh, <laughs> and yeah, there was there was cool. They had a TV uh, camera with all, all kinds of uh, camera feeds on it, so some static feeds. I wish I could find out how to get access to that because it was really cool. It was like sixteen feeds of a racetrack. That's like perfect for my ADHD brain. <laughs> um, yeah, fair enough. But yeah, it was it was really cool. Uh, 
I mean, you know, and then we were able to kind of go on the gurney um, area, like the the gurney overlook, um, which is like an access. It's like a it's it overlooks. Um, it's an open area that overlooks the pits, but it's at the ends of the big uh, pit lane superstructure thing. Yeah. So yeah, we just got to do a bunch of crazy stuff, um, and uh, yeah, just kind of Sebring continues to be Sebring, which uh, is always just you know intoxicating for for me to keep going back every year. So, Dude, that's wild. Um, that's like act yeah. like you belong sort of stuff <laughs> yeah i mean it kind of, it, it basically was um i mean and it i mean at that point uh, you know the, the pass was king i mean you could say like oh i'm this person this person oh sorry you don't have a pass but it's fine I'll let you in but like if you got the pass they're not really caring and it was it was saturday i mean like they had about like three hours left before anybody was even remotely caring about anything everyone was just going to pack up so we were we kind of got in at the perfect time, but it would have it would have been cool to find those maybe like Friday night or something after some of that was probably discarded, and then uh, be able to spend most of Saturday just being like, oh, you know what, you know it's been hot, it's been hot all week. I've been sweating all week. I think I need a break and go in some air conditioning, get some food, and you know just pop in the uh, Imsa Paddock Club to to refresh yourself. So Imsa, you did a great job as a person <laughs> that was able to enjoy your services and will probably never again. Give it a thumbs up, maybe two thumbs up. That is, that is incredible. That is, yeah, impeccable. My way. Yeah. Kind of reminds me, quick before we go. Um, when I was at the Rolex in 2020, it was me, a British guy, and another American, all around the same. We're all around the same age. We were in like the grandstands and towards the finish line portion of the trioval. They have like these open air, um, like I want to say like corporate or not like corporate but like basically better seats because they have like the leather chairs and, and stuff yeah and and it, it, the doors were unlocked and, and it was like oh okay we're just we're just gonna we're just gonna go in then <laughs> and nobody was around to stop us and since it's like it was like 3 a.m nobody cared that's excellent oh my gosh i gotta go, i gotta go to i gotta go to american racetracks man that sounds incredible <laughs> <laughs> yeah the level of access is 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 kind of is kind of ridiculous and then just not even to mention the creventic event that was that was essentially a test test day or to, like a like a just an open track facility day because that's how they did it Every, everything was basically open access unless it was specifically like there there was barriers that were blocking your access that was it you could just go anywhere Damn. It was crazy. I, I loved the Kerventic twenty uh, four hour race in November. That was um, that was even more nutty than Sebring is, and Sebring is still just in <laughs> Daytona too. They're just yeah. You, I mean, like again, you just act like you belong, kind of stuff. And especially if you've been there enough, like you know all of the places that are like kind of more restricted access or like what gets you where. And uh, yeah, hey, sometimes it works in your favor. So it was fun. That is awesome. That is super duper cool. I am glad you had a good time. Let's talk about some racing now, and we'll start with the first part of the Super Sebring weekend, the WEC race. It was planned to be a 1,000 miles, but uh, in the end, it turned out to be like 600 for a variety of reasons. We'll get into that in a second, but I've got to say, guys, the WEC field is gorgeous. It, like All the cars look fantastic. Um, i got to particularly shout out the new color for the Jota cars that like lighter shade of green i think looks way way better than the 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 super dark green um but even the gt field like we've seen the aston martins with that kind of vomit yellow color now the 98 has that like 
cool sort of kaleidoscope uh, coloring with the blue mixed into that as well. I, uh, the car, the field looks gorgeous. What's, what's your favorite car livery at the moment, guys? I think for nostalgia reasons, uh, I like the Penske one. The, um, the straight because, yellow? Yep, um, because if you don't know American racing, uh, Penske, um, they use that livery, you know, sometimes for, for IndyCar. I know specifically in 2006, they used that to sponsor Kurt Busch for the NASCAR Busch series. So, I mean, so obviously I was a child back then. So that scheme that, you know, it's in the back of my mind. And I, it was, was kind of nice seeing that scheme back out on track. Beautiful. I, I The nostalgia of seeing an old livery on track is sometimes just hits right in the right spot. Cookie, what about you? Uh, I don't know. I wasn't really paying too much attention to liveries. Classic. Classic cookie. I was doing it to identify the cars, but I don't know. I mean, like, yeah, there it was very colorful. I I didn't know that. There's a lot of a lot of color in the grid, which is nice. It's not I'm not seeing white, red, and black everywhere. Yes, so. indeed, the old uh, FIA mandated colors for LMP1, except for where it counts, which is Gazoo. <laughs> except <laughs> they they were the ones that made it like all when they were when they were blue and red, it. LMP1 was just different, man. Once they changed, I mean, I mean, this weekend Toyota definitely hit some blue. <laughs> <laughs> well, do we want to start there then? Do we want to start uh, with Toyota's LMP1 race and the crash and the red flag? I mean, we should start with LMP1, which yeah, I mean, that was a big, that was definitely a big part of it. Yeah, so uh, uh, of course, um, LMP1, it's still we're going through this process again of uh, the second year of the grandfathered. Well, sorry. LMH, we're going through the second year of the grandfathered LMP1 with Alpine. Last year, we saw the issue wherein the Alpine was okay on pace. It was in the same realm of pace with the LMH cars, but had nothing to fight with for the fuel length, the stint length. Mm -hmm. This year at Sebring, it looks like the Alpine was given quite a bit more pace, and it very much offset the fuel well the lack of fuel the the shorter stint times to the point where it looked as if the alpine was in a bit of a different class obviously they got helped with the race stoppages and the shortening of the race which meant that their their fuel uh their stint length disadvantage wasn't exemplified over the course of the race but chris your thoughts was the alpine in a different class over the course of the sebring eight hours well, I think I think it really helped because I believe they had a, a safety car pretty early on, uh, or full course yellow. I can't remember which one. Um, so though I w- I would say those definitely really helped the Alpine. Um, so obviously with I don't believe they did BOP changes for Spa yet. Um, I would assume Alpine will probably get a little bit of a peg down. Um, but yeah, but I think. Um, if we didn't have as much of those race stoppages, we would have probably seen more play out with Toyota having the longer stint links. But due to the fact, you know, we had those race stoppages, Alpine could have a little bit more, you know, free stops mm. to prevent the, you know, Toyota uh, cl- clamping down on them. It obviously didn't help with, you know, the Jose Maria Lopez crash. Yeah, and and that was quite a significant interruption. I think it ended up being 40 minutes or something along those lines. And Mm -hmm. it also kind of ruined the other Toyota's race as well because they had to come in and take emergency service when the race got restarted, which then dropped them to the back of the queue. So it was a bunch of things that went wrong for Toyota. Uh, Cookie, is this Toyota's worst race from a, a, like a, 
strategy and logistics standpoint uh, since joining the WEC? It just seems like everything they tried to do went wrong. The, 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 the car doesn't seem really happy at Sebring either for them. Um, I don't know. They've, uh, uh, they've looked better with, uh, with the other car here, but at the same time too, I feel like the way that it's happening is that there's, there's, they're still handicapped pretty hard by the Lucan house being just off the pace in terms oh. of ultimate pace between the Alpine. I mean, yeah, I mean, let's just be honest. Did, that, the hybrid did get for a Toyota, the hybrid did get, a. Uh, reduced they got nerfed yeah they couldn't use the hybrid as much so that's that was one of the other reasons the so the major change in the bop for toyota was that their hybrid um activation speed was increased from 120 k's to 190 kilometers per hour which basically means like out of all the slow corners of which at sebring there are a few they don't get that same punch out of corners um that, of course, has a big effect on how they can process traffic. Do you think then maybe that's why Jose Maria Lopez had that incident with the number uh, 88 Proton car? The fact that coming out of what was it? It was turn seven where they made contact. Do you, do you think being used to having that big punch out of corners, he was not expecting what well, he was expecting to have already passed the car? No, I, I just think it was a combination of that uh, they're they're behind the eight ball in terms of ultimate pace. Um, the the setup probably uh, maybe tire wear was in their favor, but setup wise, like they they probably weren't as comfortable as the Alpine, you know, was. Um, and yeah, I mean, you know, he wasn't leading, and I don't I don't think he was in second. Yeah, I just I just think that uh, he was pushing hard to try to keep up with the uh, the front two, um, or at least his his uh, sister car. And just outbreaked himself in turn seven, and ultimately, you know, a GT car got around him. That might have like maybe got to him a little bit, where he was like, "Ah, that's annoying that he got around me, and I uh, got to repass him." So, thinking that like you know maybe running him a little bit closer than he intended to, but it just looked like he just misjudged it. It looks like he he kind of went, you know, he he kind of went with how the racetrack is laid out, like you know, keeping equal distance between both sides, kind of thing. Um, whereas at that part of the track, like you kind of start to transition from the right side to the left. Yeah. Um, so he naturally just kind of crossed in front of the Porsche. I don't think he meant to, and he, he clearly just didn't know that he, the Porsche was still there. So I just thought he, it was just a misjudgment. Um, and then the rest was also just a misjudgment. So, yeah. uh, you know, it, it was just, it was unfortunate. Yeah, clearly. Um, we'll, we'll talk about we'll yeah. talk about the second part of the crash in a moment. Uh, Chris, you're quite a fan of GT racing. Um, what is the GT car meant to do in that situation? It's kind of hugging the right hand side of the track, and then the faster class car moves over. At some point, the GT car has to turn into to the the turn nine sweeper, right? But what options did I think it was? Um, it was the 88 car. I can't remember who was behind the wheel, but what options does the driver have in that situation when the prototype is squeezing maybe a little too hard? I believe it was Fred Pordad in that car during the accident. Um, the simple answer is obviously, if you've been watching endurance racing long enough, is that slower car, it's the responsibility of the faster cars to pass, not for the slower cars to move over. So I guess if if a little bit earlier, if you just be more predictable, just take your racing line. Um, I, it was really, it, it was really tough, but I mean, 
I mean, it could also would have it would have helped if uh, JML was a little bit less aggressive mm. after that, also because like I don't believe he was like anywhere near a position overall, so he could have just took it easy and just probably made the pass on turn ten and, and, and not have an issue at all. Yeah, it it looked a bit sort of uh, as Cookie put it, um, just inattentive. It, it seemed that he wasn't expecting the Porsche to be there, so it ended up he. He collected the edge of the concrete and the tires uh, with the front of the car, which was lucky that he didn't entirely get the concrete. But then, as we saw, it the the front of the car, the front front spitter, basically ended up underneath the front tires as he went into turn ten. Uh, sorry, t- uh, turn thirteen and fourteen, the pair of left hand sweepers, and had that massive accident. Um, first off, glad that he's okay. Secondly. How am I? I'm trying. The gears are turning in my head. How do I phrase this right? Uh, was that the dumbest thing you've seen at Sebring? <laughs> are, you, are we talking about on track or in the <laughs> Let's let's keep it to on track. <laughs> it was. I don't think he knew that the um the, the front part of the bodywork was dragging underneath the car. Um, I, but he was I. In my aunt, I think he was still driving too fast, because I think you saw the smoke in the onboards. Um, I would have hoped he would have seen that, mm. and maybe would have thought like, "Hey, maybe let's let's take it easy a bit," and and I'm sure I'm sure I'm sure like the rate he had radio telling him the extent of the damages. So I don't know. I from from the outside looking in. Driving that fast with a piece of lower front bodywork dragging underneath the car looked pretty dumb. Uh, yeah, I can, I can certainly, I, I certainly agree with that. I wonder if, because that's that that run into turn um, fourteen, fifteen. That's the sort of fastest part of the track after turn seven. I wonder if uh, that was just the first opportunity he really had to get up to speed, and then that's when the front kind of tucked in, and then at that point he was a passenger. Um, Cookie, it was great though to see the response from the uh, the team. Well, sorry, the the like the response team, the fixing of the tire barriers, the fact that the tire barriers kept him off the concrete and back onto into like the track bounds. Um, great work by the IMSA officials, and great work particularly by uh, Eduardo as well to just immediately red flag the race after that. Uh, what were your, what were your thoughts on how that was handled and? you know, that whole process for Lopez. I mean, they're sensible. Uh, I mean, certainly there could be better ways to have a barrier there and something more permanent to be a little bit more safe. Um, but some of the, you know, I'm not going to say some of the charm is, is, is the rough shot way it is, but part of the, part of the way that the track is, is that it's difficult to, to create a lot of, you know, extra safety margins without really modifying how the track is. Or at least the layout of some of it. Um, so yeah, I, I mean, from from that aspect, I mean, it's not good to see a car um, to go in there. And we we've seen prototypes for the last you know decade or so go in there and get some errors, flip over sometimes. So um, <clears throat> that might be something to look at in terms of the Tefco barriers or something else there to maybe try to um, prevent maybe cars getting up in the air, but at the same time that is dissipating energy. So yeah, uh, 
Honestly, that's really the only thing I can think that's a, that's a problem. The red flag felt appropriate uh, because the car was literally upside down, and um, yeah, the severity of the crash. So, and they got to reset the barriers. So, yeah, I mean, everything was appropriate. I, there was nothing really to complain about. Everything kind of and got back going. It was tough luck for the other Toyota. Um, but that's just the way it goes. And just for it to be, you know, it's ironic that it was their teammate that caused the even more worse luck for their sister car. But hey. You know, it's a lot of what ifs, but mm. I don't know. And I think the the Jose Mir Lopez thing, like, I mean, sure, like he's this is definitely now chaining into more and more kind of like things you can point to to be like, okay, well, you know, he might be a weak point or you know, weak chain uh, or link in that chain. But I, I don't know. I, I think it was just a a bad judgment call to to move over that quickly. But um, yeah, I, I I sincerely think he just saw it as a tire rub. I probably looked like a tire rub, and the fact that the tire I think might have been moving still to him. Like, it didn't look down. It wasn't, you know, deformed and deflated and stuff. So, to him, it just looked like it might have been the front pushed in a little bit. Though, from that aspect, it's not going to really remove your ability to turn left um, until he got to a point where he needed to turn left and it didn't work. So, yeah, I don't know. It, it was it was, it was was tough to watch as a Toyota fan, but mm. at the same time, it's like, that's that's racing. So, yeah. that stuff will happen. But and this, and this red flag was when the TV director decided to be a little bit cheeky uh, because it, that they pointed the camera towards a nearby road and zoomed in at the orange road work ahead sign. <laughs> that was brilliant. I gotta say that TV direction was very, very well done. Um, you mentioned Cookie about Jose Maria Lopez and saying that this was a, sort of an, another incident that he's been involved in with traffic. And sure, every. LMP1 driver and every LMH driver and every LMP2 driver and every higher class driver has had incidents in traffic. Um, but it's it's something that seems to consistently happen with Lopez behind the wheel. What do you reckon is the reason for that? And is that a point of concern for Toyota Gazoo Racing Cookie? Potentially. Uh, I think... I think right now they they have a bit more of le uh, just of I don't know um, not being untethered but not having a ton of pressure on their you know performance. I mean even if somehow Alpine win you know, win the the championship this year, um, you know it, it's a tough sell for a lot of us to be like hey that's it's well earned and you guys didn't win the law because I just it's going to be tough for them to win the law this year. Um, against Toyota, I mean, you never know, but you know, especially with how the BOP is going and whatnot, because it is it's such a moving target, um, and with how the Glicken House is just weighing the Toyotas down, it's hard to, to hard to hard to be like, okay, Alpine's just really dominant this year. Yeah. So I think there's a little bit of relaxation with some of Toyota that there's there is not this internal pressure to perform 100. percent I mean, you want to be, and yeah. that's where you need to be for Peugeot coming in, but. I, there's, I get the feeling that it's not as, you know, a lot of this stuff happening right now isn't as an intense and must, must correct, must fix kind of uh, things yet. I, I think if it starts to happen with Peugeot and then Ferrari and Porsche next year and everybody else, then I think we might start to see more problems. But I don't know. I, I think this is good. He's getting more, you know, all these crashes or problems are, are making him a better driver, I think, so... We'll, we'll see. We'll see how how much better he gets if he does. Yeah, I hope I hope so because um, coming from a touring car background, it must be quite a difference having such slower cars on track that you have to navigate. Uh, 
Moving on from that aspect, the red flag really destroyed the other Toyota's race and its challenge for the lead. It also played havoc with the Glickenhaus as well. They'd just taken a pit stop, I think, before the uh, red flag came out and happened to be a lap down on the Alpine because of it. So, unfortunately, they weren't able to get the wave around and they kind of stuck uh, were stuck a lap down afterwards. Uh, Glickenhaus taking their first overall podium in the WEC, though. That's pretty uh, a pretty good achievement, but no one really had the pace to challenge the Alpine, and our good friend Oliver uh, Trevelyvus uh, uh, did some great analysis uh, on his sports car engineering blog that you should definitely check out, um, talking about the difference in the fuel tank, the difference in pace and the difference in the fuel tank, and basically it boils down to, to this. Um, the 36 Alpine was about 0.15 seconds faster per kilometer than the Toyotas, as in, so per distance traveled. And for each kilometre, the number 36 spent 0.08 of a second servicing the car. So that kind of goes to show the fact that the Alpine was almost twice as fast as where it should have been in terms of uh, keeping the field closely balanced. And he goes on to say that the Glickenhaus and the Toyota were actually pretty closely balanced. Uh, the, the difference was just when that Glickenhaus took its pit stop, and that kind of changed everything around. So, looking towards the next round of the series at uh, at Spa. We're at Spa next, right? We're at Spa? Spa? Yep. Spa? Yep. Yep. Um, You're alive. You are alive. <laughs> yep. What does the WEC need to do to equalize that sort of difference? Is it a matter of the fact that there was so many stoppages in the race that um, the Alpine was able to skip away and stay away? Or is there something that the WC needs to do to sort of peg the Alpine back a little bit? Give or take. Um, I think it's the... Because uh, it depends. If you're going to have a lot of safety cars, then obviously, like, pace difference is not, you know... Like, mm. it's the same adage of, like, uh, fuel mileage. If um, if somehow the Alpine was um, way faster but used less fuel and the Toyota just was naturally slower but used way less fuel. So... Um, you know, uh, so there's going to be an up and flow of that, the advantage and disadvantage. So with BOP, the way it has to work right now is that the Toyota is just a naturally faster car. So you have to restrict the Toyota as best you can and also buff the Alpine as best you can without making it dangerous um, to allow the Alpine to, to be on the level with Toyota. And the problem is, is that in order for Alpine to be on the level of Toyota through the span of a, a simulated six hour, 12 hour, 24 hour, 10, you know, 10 hour race, um, you know, the Alpine has to pretty much be the faster car in qualifying in the first maybe two, three laps or whatever. But then the, the pace has to come back to the Toyota, um, you know, maybe a few mil, a little bit better fuel economy. Mm. Um, so technically, that's where the Toyota should start making up time. Um, because I think if the Toyota and Alpine were even up perfectly, like you had them run the exact same lap time, the Alpine is going to finish by the Toyota just naturally because of traffic and B, because I just think that, you know, it should, it should lose its balance over this dent quicker than the Toyota should. That's yeah. at least my opinion. And, and the, um, the Alpine will be hamstrung in that situation by its fuel economy. So we'll have to come but in it and it should look stop. faster. Yeah. That's my point. It should look faster on paper and it was too fast at Sebring, but really the perfect quote unquote thing without all the safety car and red, red, red flag shenanigans would have the Alpine leading out front and probably pulling away a bit. And then having seen those Toyotas start to reel it back in. 
And that's really what we didn't see. And I think just because they had a, a, an advantage at Sebring over the Toyotas. So, Yeah, and Sebring, of course, is a very different track to uh, a lot of the other races we go to in the season, including Spa-Francorchamps. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how that uh, pans out at Spa. We'll move on now to LMP2. And for me, LMP2 kind of got a, a little lost in the source. Uh, there was so much going on in the other classes that it was hard to kind of nail down. But what uh, what did get nailed down, though, was uh, United Autosports with another win under their books. But it wasn't nearly as dominant as what we'd seen in the past from United. They ended up winning from the pair of WRT cars, uh, which included... Um, uh, one of the Pro-Am cars, I believe, and the real team by WRT. Uh, but it didn't it didn't all go their own way. Uh, Chris, what did you glean from the w, uh, from the LMP2 uh, race? Gonna be honest, like it kind of got lost in the sauce with me too. Yeah, um, well, yeah. all, you, all you guys are lost in the sauce, dang. I remember it having a couple couple good battles. Um, one thing I do want to point out is that with Josh Pearson. In the United, it be- I think he becomes the youngest ever winner in the WEC. Dude is 17 or 16 or something. That's messed up. Good. I mean, yeah, uh, he's I mean, good. But also, like, what were you doing at 16, Cookie? How long ago was that? Was that, like, 15 years ago? Oh, man, this isn't a podcast about me feeling bad about myself. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm so- sorry, Cookie. No, I-, I-, I, was- I wasn't driving race cars. Dang it. <laughs> Damn it. But, I don't know. <laughs> Yeah, he's he's a, he's very talented, and, and uh, I mean, he, he could jump back over to open wheel and, and do that, but he could be a complete insane force to be reckoned with in uh, sports car racing, especially with the dawn of a bunch of OEMs mm. knocking on people on drivers' doors for contracts. So probably still too young for that, but he'll definitely be getting some glances from a lot of uh, very important people. And um, if if you career, and if so. United Autosports are in the market to be a, a factory team or a works team for an LMP uh, LMDH drive, then he'd be in the box seat for one of those as well. A good a good PR. I mean, if he's super young but can handle it, um, to have him on the team. So, yeah. uh, I mean, for LMP two, Prima and WRT, the, the, the two of them were kind of keeping the twenty two honest a bit, but um, the twenty two was the had the most laps led and all that. So. Um, they they had a, a a good amount of the race to themselves a bit, but they definitely did, were challenged by uh, WRT, and I I I don't know if I was surprised at all that Prima finished pretty well, but still I, I think uh, Prima is going to surprise people like WRT did and Duquesne did and all of those in the years past. They're uh, they're very good, and and it looks like as well it it's not a foregone conclusion. We've kind of had this foregone conclusion <laughs> sort of era in LMP2 where it was like, oh, G-Drive's going to win. Oh, no, United's going to win. Oh, no, uh, WIT's going to win. Or, or Jota's going to win. And now it's, there's, even though United had the pace broadly throughout the race on uh, on Saturday, um, it was, uh, uh, sorry, on Friday in Sebring, it wasn't all their own way. I've got to pretty well shout out uh, Prima, the fact that they've come over and immediately on the pace in the mix and just outside the podium on their first event. Sure, it's not what WRT did, but it's still quite a quite a solid result for them. Uh, and looking down the order as well, AF Corsa, the uh, Perodo, uh, Rivera, and uh, Nielsen car took Pro-Am honours uh, in that class as well. And that's a pretty good shot for them in terms of jumping back into the LMP2 class and doing well, isn't it? 
Oh yeah. Um, and yeah, all power to him. Uh, I mean, it, it's, it's no, it's no, um, easy feat to try to jump, especially into the international series, uh, WC, which it tells itself as being the, the, the top flight sports cars, um, championship. So, um, and, you know, and, and just the difference between, um, running EMS or Asian Monsters or IMSA versus, <laughs> you know, the, co- the continent hopping that you're doing with this. Like you're, you're kind of like jumping onto a circus and riding that around the, 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 you know, each continent for the entire calendar year, instead of a lot of these regional series, which stay in their region. So, I mm. mean, even that is, is an entirely different animal to try to organize your, your staff and crew to get all there. So, um, you know, especially for the first year, a lot of times you just, you don't expect that, you know, you don't expect the team to be gelling perfectly. And, you know, just to see so many of these teams to be able to just come in and, world-class efforts and be able to show that world-class immediately is, is pretty incredible to watch. So, And uh, as well, just the, looking at, uh, like, I've not really paid attention too much to uh, a lot of the things that came out of Sebring, but I'm just looking at the driver quality throughout the field in LMP2, and it's it's kind of scary just how good all the drivers are. It's, it's, it's almost, it almost looks like a Formula 2 field and just how good the, the driving talent is across the whole class, which is kind of nuts. Yeah, I mean, so many ex-Formula 2 or current Formula 2 or probably going to be Formula 2 drivers and stuff like that that are in, you know that were in the field already yeah. um, driving prototypes. So, yeah, I mean, the future looks bright for that, and it's necessary just for what we're about to start happen, you know, having happen uh, yeah. in the next couple of years for the sport. So it's great to see this amount of talent here and being able to showcase that on a, on a race-by-race basis at this point. Absolutely. Um, we'll jump into GTE because there was a few that was a few things that were going on in GTE. Firstly, uh, it was the Porsche uh, number ninety-two team that took the win over the Corvette Racing uh, number sixty-four. Their first run in the WEC as a full season entry, uh, and then the second Porsche, the Ferraris, they were kind of nowhere. Uh, is that again something to be talked about in the BOP, or just does Ferrari not match up with the Sebring circuit? I think it's an. Um, I mean, uh, I don't. I, I don't know. I, I, it's 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 hard to say because it's GTE. Because um, every single time I want to talk about, you know, or my brain thinks uh, Ferrari BOP, it immediately thinks about GT3 and how they're the ba- you know the benchmark for GT3 BOP. So I'm like, oh well, it just it's their chassis. They're the benchmark for BOP. Yeah, but it's not really the case in GTE. So I don't. I, I don't know. I mean, I, I thought they were pretty good at at C ring and past. Um, but maybe it's something with the setup, uh, you know, or just something with the the drivers not feeling um, comfortable with the setup there. I mean, again, it's these are semi new drivers for AF Corsa too. Um, you know, it, this isn't stalwarts that we've seen for like four years in these AF Corsa cars. So there could be a little bit of just still needing to mesh, especially with like a street circuit setup, which is what Sebring is, yeah, basically, and maybe that's just not working well for them, and it's. It's WC, so you know how often are you going to be having to focus on a very bumpy circuit setup like that? So I don't know. It could be a factor of both of those things, but yeah, I think the Porsche just had a little bit better BOP this uh, this run, and they played the weather probably a little bit better in their favor. So yeah, and as well, it was a, a great battle between the Porsches and the uh, the Corvettes. Uh, the the start of the race though went a bit pear shaped for for Porsche. They were both on the front row of the grid. 
and both cars picked up a 15 second time penalty for a star infringement. Uh, effectively, they left too big a gap between the GT field and the LMP field or the prototype field. Chris, what was your read on that? Do you, do you agree with the penalty? Like, I'm going to be honest with you. When I was watching the race, I probably, I don't think I even know that happened. <laughs> um, I don't know. Like, leave, was it leaving too big of a gap from the prototype start? 15 second penalty? I don't know. I mean, I, I, I guess they want to have strict starting procedures, which makes sense. But I, I'm going to be honest with you. This is probably the first time I've heard, like, for penalties regarding for, like, keeping, like, a decent enough gap between, like, the starting group. Um, I, I don't know. I don't know how to feel about this one. Yeah, I, I'm actually just watching the start through now. And, and what it did mean is that when uh, Porsche came through for their first pit stops, they basically relegated themselves uh, a, a change of tyres behind the Corvette in the early stages. And it doesn't actually look like there's... Uh, a huge gap, but I think the thing is as well is that the GT field was kind of forming up behind them still um, as they came to the line. Uh, in fact, the the first prototypes are heading into turn one as the uh, GT cars come out of Sunset Bend, so uh, it, it felt a bit felt a bit off to me. But it, it was almost immaterial in the end um, because of the the safety car interruptions and the red flags and all those sort of things. Um, one thing I do want to pick out though. Driver of the race for me was Nick Tandy in the in the Corvette. How good is Tandy behind the wheel of that uh, of that Corvette, guys? He was just absolutely monstering that thing. The fact that he ab- was able to keep the likes of Christensen behind him for so long and then make pace later on the race on a different set of tires, it was just awesome to watch. The, the battles between the Corvette and Porsche were so entertaining to watch. That was the high, that, that was the definite highlight of the GTE Pro class that race. I mean. It seems like it was. I remember very early on in the beginning, that was pretty much what the cameras were focusing on, and it it, it was very entertaining. And hopefully, we we get the same thing for Spa, as we all know. Uh, Corvette raced at Spa last year. That was that was Oliver Gavin's last race, little tidbit. And so they have the bo. Well, actually, they have the auto bop right for mm. the first Spa. So, so we should see an adjustment for the Ferrari to come a bit back to the field, hopefully, maybe, perhaps. Um, great racing in GTE. Uh, great racing in GTE-M as well. Uh, pretty well marshaled all race by the Northwest AMR number 98 crew, uh, who at one point was leading a Aston Martin 1-2-3 before the Team Project 1 and Dempsey Proton Porsches started to come back into the mix. Um, the number 98 just looked untroubled all race. Is this finally Paul Dallalana's year? Uh, he's had one GTM championship, but has come close to winning GTM and winning Lamar a bunch of times. Is this finally the year? He could well, also maybe win Lamar too. Fingers, yeah, arms, we'll, legs, we'll, toes, and eyes crossed for that. We'll we'll have we'll have to have this discussion once he doesn't crash at you know near the Porsche curves at Lamar. Is that that's something that sticks out with my in my mind for Paul Dallana because I for some reason. I know it probably doesn't happen as much as I think it does, but it seems like Paul Dallalana, or at least that car, and like between the Porsche Curves and the Ford Chicane, it's just like a, a cursed zone for them. Yeah, so fingers on flakes, toes and eyes crossed, that doesn't happen. Um, GTM was good. We're running out of time here, so we're not going to focus on it too much. 
Um, I do want to say, though, it is kind of fun to see guys like Ben Barnacote and uh, Giancarlo Fischichella, uh just, like, banging doors at every single opportunity in GTE AM. Uh, the fact that those kind of guys are racing in an AM class is just kind of wild. I mean, they, you know, what's what's dead may never die. If they're talented and can uh, bring the car home and pretty quick and maybe, uh, you know, provide some exciting um, competitive racing, they're going to get stuck in the car. So, Brilliant. Brilliant stuff. We'll, we'll move on from the... Well, there's one last thing I want to talk about with the WEC, and we've kind of left it to the end uh, of this discussion because it was a bit of the elephant in the room. So the uh, the end of the race was aborted about an hour ahead of time because of lightning strikes in the area. Uh, and Eduardo came across the radio uh, and said that as part of the, the law in Florida, they have to halt the race for the safety of the corner marshals and the patrons um, because of lightning strikes. Like that, that's, that's part of the law of the state. They can't do anything about it. Cookie, you were at the track. What was your read on the weather situation at the end of the race? And uh, do you, do you think that the race could have continued had that not, had that law not been in place? Yeah, I mean it. it uh, I mean it's an acceptable risk. So um, you know, how, it's it's just it's it's a determination of of an individual's opinion on what is uh, safe or not in terms of lightning. So. Yeah. Um, you know, like there's, uh, especially in the U S uh, you know, in the Florida is, is lightning, lightning strike capital of world. Like it just, as the, we just get so many lightning strikes a year, um, with, with just how the storms pop up, especially in Florida. So we have really unique weather conditions that make lightning very, very common and the conditions for lightning very, very common. So I know in the Midwest, they do have like lightning detections from like a, you know, proton electron ion thing in terms of like, <laughs> if it gets saturated in the air, it like uh, for parks and stuff, there's alarms that go off to people to seek shelter. There, there's potential risk for lightning or something like that. So um, our um, um, NFL pro football, us football um, has same stuff too for their stadiums. Uh, if there's lightning strike within like, I think 10, 15, 20, like I think it's like 12 miles of the stadium. Um, they stop play. They have to go off the field, and they try to like get as many people off the field, like out of the stands as possible. And then it just that counter resets every time there's lightning strike. So, I mean, I've been to a bunch of football games at the University of Florida that have been lightning strike delayed for like an hour and a half, and we just were sitting there waiting for the play to resume and just kind of cursing the sky and hoping not to get struck by lightning after that. So, um, yeah, um, all to say that I think it was appropriate. It was fine because that's a safety thing. So I'm not going to bother with that. And, um, I think too, it probably wouldn't have been as controversial had the rain that was to our North, South, East and West of us at the time, like actually hit the track. Cause it was, it was around, it was very close around us. There was tons of lightning. I mean, it looked like it was going to downpour, but the radar on my screen didn't look like it was going to rain. Um, it just looked like it was off to the sides, but you know, I don't know, you know, stuff with lightning can strike 12 miles away from where, you know, the storm's at or something yeah. like that. So, um, yeah, it's frustrating because it's like, it's a weather thing, but in the worst sense that it completely stops everything, even though everything's fine and it's just a complete random chance that somebody could be struck by lightning. But we've had some people die at racetracks in the last 10 years uh, at a NASCAR event too in Pennsylvania. Um, 
So lightning is uh, is taken way more seriously at motorsport events specifically because of that yeah. event that happened in uh, Pocono. And, so. and I guess as well, the fact that you've got like metal cages, bridges over the track, you know, the, the marshals are in uh, like effectively metal boxes, uh, which, you know, isn't necessarily conducive to safe uh, operating um that there's a, a great concern there and it was it, it kind of sucked that we didn't get the the grandstand finish that we were maybe hoping for in a few of the classes um but as you said it is a safety issue and that must be like it, it's part of the law of the state you can't just disregard the law to to keep a race going when there's you know potential for safety in the air um i think what you said there about the fact that the weather didn't actually ever properly arrive uh, made people a bit extra frustrated as well. Uh, Chris, you were watching. I remember jumping into the live chat just at the end of the race. What were your thoughts as a as a as a external observer? It, I just it, it was quite a shame to see it have be more controversial than what it actually you know should have been. Because um, I know in Europe, and I know I don't know if they do it in Australia. I know in Europe, South Africa, you know, there's they, they race and there's lightning strikes all over. Does that mean that it's okay? Well, that's that's you know, that's gonna be a definitely a opinionated answer for people, that's for sure. Um, but yeah, and I know some Europeans were you know frustrated, saying that the law was only to protect people from getting sued, which is you know sort of correct. Basically, it was it helped cover the race. Tr- so, you know, it, it, it's, it was just frustrating because basically as soon as that uh, red flag hit and we didn't get the finish, a lot of people came to look America bad. Yeah. It, it, it's, yeah, true. Okay, so was the law made, yes, it was because someone died at a racetrack at Pocono. And people took action on that, which we glad they did. But it was also to, because after that Pocono incident, they the family I would, I would presume sued the racetrack and NASCAR, and they, and so basically, in to protect to, to not have any of those in the future, you know, they they just made the the lightning rule, which yeah. I I prefer it than people dying. But, but yeah, but it's, it's like, okay. it was just frustrating because I know like <laughs> Europe and the rest of the world does it, but uh, it just be it, it was just frustrating honestly because a lot of people were mad, you know, it was U.S. bad. It was just it it, it yeah it kind of came a, a bit a bit toxic there for a little while, which is unfortunate. Um, yeah, yeah, it was like it it's something that happened. It's like let's see. I mean, international motorsport events have been postponed for lightning in other countries. I mean, Malaysia's had it uh, lightning postponed. Oh yes, Malaysia. Before. So oh. I mean, but like it's it's just this is a product of being in a tropical uh, environment, climate, and that's what it, that's what Florida is. And especially now in the summer or in the in the spring, like we're getting more. Um, like the, it's usually around this that time where you get the dry season, but there's that weird like transition from winter to dry season kind of getting hot in florida that like you get you get some you get some rain you get some weather um but it's it's been they've been more you know like 
they've been more thunderstormy in the last few years than recently. A lot of times it would just be rain and you just get some rain and then it would dry out. But now it's been like thunder cells. Yeah. And yeah. And again, like if this was, if this was in Washington where it just is usually just wet, rainy, not lightning and all that. And they did this because there was potential for rain in the nearby area. They thought maybe there'd be lightning. It'd be different, but especially with Florida and the way it is, and it is lightning capital of the world. Like, and- they do not mess with it at all down here. So, and if I can make one more point, I noticed that because um, people were making the points like, "Well, oh, it's it's for safety, you know, get the marshals out and you know get everybody protected." But I mean, it was kind of because the drivers were out in the open. Um, I remember them them standing grid. Does that excuse, you know, you know, the you know, what am I trying to say here? Does that mean there's like, oh, look at look at what they're doing, and also the spectators, they're out in the open. Well, that that means you know we should go race. That 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 doesn't mean that. And and I want to point out uh, point out something. If when if being a red flag, right? If there's a red flag, that would probably mean more spectators would go to shelter because mm. if you continue to have the race running in green flag conditions with potentially you know lightning in the area. How many of those people would you think go to shelter? Yeah, it, it, not many, if any. So that that's one point I know people are kind of, you know, I think we're missing out on. Just, yes, just because, you know, the fans, you know, they're out in the open, you know, maybe they didn't really have a place to go. Maybe with the red flag, you know, they could have just went, you know, went back to their cars, you know, and just, just hide, hit out there hide out with someone in a camper, you know, or anything else than being out in the open instead of, you know, having the race ran in green flag conditions and potentially having uh, more people out there being exposed. Yeah. So we're all pretty well in agreement that it was the right thing to do in the end, right? Yeah. 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 Uh, yeah. I mean, not even a question. It's just protocol. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's frustrating from a fan standpoint to not see it go back to green. It's, you know, and it's the same thing that why NASCAR is now does green white checkers and all this other stuff it's they make a lot of this stuff for the um the entertainment of the fans and this is one of those things where it's like as a as a fan of the sport you gotta you know like the you gotta choose whether or not that being very official and precise in pretty much everything else in this in this sport um extends all to you know, specific safety protocols, especially when it comes to inclement weather and the safety of track officials and the marshals. So mm. their safety comes first before anybody else, including, the, you know, as well as the drivers. So it's just from that standpoint, they, they don't have a choice and there's no point in really complaining about it outside of, all right, I'm complaining about it because I want the WC to have a tw- at 20 minutes. Um, you know, if anything happens in 20 minutes, you reset it, to, or, you know, within 20 minutes, you reset it to 10 minutes and let them all race green you yeah. know for a 10 minute sprint you could you could do that and that's really the only argument you can make but this one is just it's very it's so clear-cut it's not even worth an argument honestly like it's just not it's very cut and dry so fair enough glad we got that out of the way um at the end of the race it was as we may mention the alpine that was leading the way i don't think anything changed too much under the safety car or the red flag at the end of the race so there wasn't any late race shenanigans like there was at uh the road atlanta race that year that porsche won where all the dps pit first and lost all their positions but glad to see that all (laughs) went without a hitch 
If you're following plenty of motorsport series like I do, you've probably run into trouble with calendars, time zone conversions, and most importantly, missing the start of racing you want to watch. That's why I use the Racing Line app. The Racing Line is your customizable motorsport calendar, giving you up-to-date schedules on all the racing you care about with all major motorsport series covered. Use the day or week for you to check out what's on and plan for those busy weekends ahead. The Racing Line allows you to set customizable notifications for events, giving you enough time to get yourselves ready for the racing you want to watch, or for me, to get the race threats ready. Plus, it's all converted into your local time zone, so there's no getting caught out by bad mental maths or daylight saving changes around the world. Find out more at theracingline.app or search The Racing Line on the iOS store. Thank you to The Racing Line for sponsoring this podcast. Oh, IMSA. Oh, IMSA. IMSA, 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 yeah. Let's talk about IMSA then. And I'll be 100% honest here. I did not actually manage to watch much of the IMSA race like at all. It just kept, fell at a really bad time for me and I haven't had a chance to catch up. Um, but what I do see looking at the results is I see the top five cars on the same lap within 30 seconds of each other. That end of the race must have been something else. Yeah, they uh, they ended up being pretty damn close to each other at the end of the 12 hours, especially since they almost had near five hours of green flag running to the end of the race. So um, just for them to be that close to each other um, is a testament to how the regulations have gone. And um, and honestly, the fact that they've had, you know, two to three stable types of um machinery that you know just have not had problems or have had funding issues and withdrawn outside of <laughs> some some of them but uh, <laughs> yeah it's it's you know it's just you can see the benefit of, of having stable oems especially with the stable regulations like IMSA has done a very good job with it and dpi continue to excel with that so um and good to see the you know the competition between the dpis still be very very close so uh, I think all of them had a shot to win. Yeah, so uh, there were five on the on the in the lead in the last stint. Um, I'm looking through through the results here and it, talking about um, Earl Bamba rushing through basically the last stint and passing for the lead uh, after getting a drive through penalty late on in the race. Uh, Chris, how, what was Earl Bamba's last stint like? It must have been something else. Again, something else. Yeah, so he was basically really uh, you know sound like a five-year-old child i almost sound like a five-year-old child there really faster uh, <laughs> he was much more faster uh-huh. than the uh what was it the jdc miller car i remember i believe he passed him coming basically coming out of the corner onto the um onto the back straight um go, coming up the inside i think maybe he roughed him up a little bit and basically just drove off ever since um, and, and, and Elm, um, so LMP1, DPI was, as you said, was pretty close. I mean, anytime you, you, you look up from your timing screen, you know, there'll, you know, there's, you know, there'll be someone battling for position in DPI. Basically, unfortunately for the 01 Cadillac, um, basically right from the get go, they had a gearbox issue, which I think might've been the same issue they had at Daytona. Uh, but yeah, and they never really fully recovered from that so very unfortunate they that same car did end up winning at long beach the next time around so they got some redemption um but obviously missed out and on a boatload of points there for the championship 
Yeah, they 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 got hurt pretty bad at Sebring. Yeah, absolutely. It it looks that uh, the Cadillacs with the car to be in though at Sebring, the top the top three in the podium, all Cadillacs. Um, did it, did yeah. it look like the Cadillacs had the pace throughout the race, or was it something that happened late on that they just seemed to find a way with the conditions uh, cooling off and the, the the sun going away that they managed to come to the fore? It's been five years. I feel like I'm I am the most broken record when I say the Cadillacs are the best chassis in IMSA by far, and it's just a question that they're they just have a better baseline to start from. If their neutral balance is um, three tenths faster than the Acuras and four tenths, five tenths faster than Mazdas without some help, then like you know, even if they get BOP down to their level, they're still you know, they're driving under well under the limit of their car, whereas the Acuras and Mazdas are clearly like I feel like they clearly have to be driven on the on the edge of their limit in order to beat the deep uh the Cadillacs. So um and I think the bumps certainly help the Cadillacs and it does help them at Long Beach. Um it's just yeah, I you know, it's just a thing we see over and over and over again. And uh, you know, it speaks to the importance potentially of more Joker updates or the actual legitimate, authentic use of implementing Joker updates or having some system where you can try to uh, limit the advantage um, because yeah, and that's ultimately why Peugeot aren't entering Le Mans early, and that's probably why Ferrari are going to take their time and mm. Toyota were taking as much time as possible because you just try to get it as quick as possible and as neutral as possible so you can get BOP down to other people's level and to drive away from everybody. So uh, Cadillac does it has done it for five years. Yeah, so, I don't know. It seems that the- I'm bored. I'm I'm <laughs> bored with IMSA DPI, man. I'm so bored with IMSA DPI. <laughs> It's like, just, it's just the caddy show. thank you, Chip. Thank you, Chip. Thank you for coming back. I love Chip Ganassi. I mean, uh, just the Grand Am Rolex, uh, you know, uh, 24 series, all that stuff with, with him. Excellent. But like, God, man, I just, I'm so done seeing those Cadillacs. I am just fed up with them. So <laughs> you, have to, you have to pay the Cadillac tax. I mean, I we're going to see him again. I, it, it, it literally feels like I'm doing, I'm treating him like the Mercedes of IMSA, where it's like, please tell me they're going to be like, they're going to pull a Mercedes next year and just be terrible. Like, I don't even want that either, because they're probably going to go to Lamar. And I, I remember, I remember the last time they went to Lamar, and I, and it's so painful, even though they've been so successful, I'm annoyed with them, that I still feel guilty trying to even bring up their North Star, um, uh, effort whatever that was that was an abortion of a, of a car so you know Jeez, what i cool still th- i still i still want them to lose but uh man it's it, you can't there it's it's a cadillac like dpi it's it's gonna win everything cookie so. i think that's the most fired up i've ever heard you about the dpi class and about cadillac it's, are you well, okay yeah, it annoys me because, like, clearly, like, clearly, Toyota and Porsche. You could go back and forth to say like which one was better. Probably the nine one nine was a little bit better, but the Toyota could eat, could beat it handily on a you know on a certain track or like with good conditions. Like it, it definitely had the legs in certain places, especially sometimes at Le Mans, but couldn't finish. Um, Cadillac is just the better. It's been the better chassis, and no matter. How many IMSA fanboys want to just sit there and tell me that IMSA DPI is the best category since literally bread was invented thousands of years ago? Like, <laughs> it's just the Cadillac is the best car, and IMSA's been doing very good things to try to keep that thing under control and allow the other manufacturers to feel like they have a decent shot at winning. Because, like, honestly, that it's just the best 
chassis. It's just the best. And I wouldn't be surprised either to, to, to hear Mr. Wayne Taylor himself make some weird comment about, like, Cadillac or, or like, something with the regulations for next year. Some comment about how good the Cadillac had, was for the entire stint of current regulations. I don't know. I just, I mean, anyway. It'd be weird because Wayne Taylor currently uses Acuras. Yeah, I well, that's what no, that's what I'm saying. It's just like I feel, I feel like even though he got that win, you know, like last year, and you know, they're they're not terrible in the accuracy. I just feel like performance wise, like there's definitely places that they just are, you know, that they're they're going to see the difference. They, you know, they're they're going to keep realizing the difference between the uh, the Cadillac and the Acura, no matter what the BOP was year to year. You know, so. I was gonna say Acura did win the Rolex this year with Meyer Shank, so and Cadillac, you know, two on the board, Sebring and Long Beach with both Chip Ganassi actually. Um, so we'll see. We got uh, as at the time of recording this podcast, we have Laguna Seca in a week's time, the first actual you know sprint race, like two hour forty minute format. So we'll have to we'll have to see what comes uh what comes. Acura wasn't Laguna too Seca. bad there. They're not bad at Mid-Ohio either. I'll give them that. They're actually probably better at Mid-Ohio than Cadillac is. Probably because it's like an actual sort of racetrack and not a speedway or a bump fest or a street circuit. Well, then explain Petit Le Mans. I don't want to. Can't make me. Okay, all right, <laughs> fair. You know what? That You know what? You, you pulled that card and I can't... I have no... I have no defense for that. No so recourse. Right. I can't ask you. Yeah. So after after that explosive uh, outburst about the Cadillac in uh, DPI, uh, what about the uh, Oricas in LMP2, Cookie? How, what, are you, what are your thoughts and feelings about that? Oh, screw DPI, man. <laughs> you know, screw DPI. It's ridiculous. I got to talk about LMP2. Yeah, we'll talk about we'll talk about the one maker rate because they're probably more entertaining than Elamess's LMP2 category is by far and away the way better, way more entertaining <laughs> category than DPI. I'm sorry. Like get out of here! Okay. The only difference, the only the only thing that IMSA has going for it is just the fanboys that are like holding pitchforks trying to kill the other people that they're racing against, like or the other fans of the other teams that they're racing against in DPI. That's it. So it's like Cadillac fans trying to murder Acura fans, which don't exist. That's the only reason that that'll be interesting, but it's not. <laughs> oh my god, this is brilliant! Oh yeah. Okay, okay, let's. Cookie, I'm, I'm, very, I'm very happy you got this off your chest. We'll, we'll leave it there, okay? It's like, it, I feel like this is the equivalent of your Sebring outburst whenever whenever we talk about <laughs> tracks. Like, it's not it's not even like, okay, well, what, what what track is located in North America? Oh, you know, it's it's Sebring's located in North America, and you know what? It sucks. sucks. It's like, where did that even come from? They just You just asked a question. It wasn't, yeah. had nothing to do with how bad you, you the know, track you know. is. You're just like, I hate the bumps. It's terrible. It's the most pointless track in the world. <laughs> You're not wrong, but like had nothing to do with what we were talking about. Oh you know, Cookie, God. we do charge. We do charge by the hour. <laughs> Wait, uh, crap, you guys sorry. are getting paid for this? Yeah. <laughs> no wonder Cookie uh, goes LMP- on long-winded rants all the time. Uh, well, LMP2 was awesome because Ben Keating won. Yay! Uh, Yay! Yeah. With Mikko yeah. Jensen uh, as well, which is cool. Kind of like the clear. Win- it was like the winner from the get-go. Really, you look at that yeah. car from the entry list, like oh, Keating LMP2 IMSA. Well, that's a that's a lock. And the Netherlands has been doing better this year. It, kind of how I thought they were going to do last year, but yeah, it, they weren't a match for PR one, especially Keating's still on his it's on top form. So oh, and Mikkel Je- Mikkel Jensen's also and in that yes, yeah. oh god, yeah, yes. 
I, I think as well, like you look through the LMP2 field in IMSA, and I think the fact that they've they've got a more AM focus than they do in, for example, the U- uh, LMS and the WEC. So it's nice to see the AMs get a bit more airtime, but it does separate the field very quickly by the quality of the AM. And yeah, as you said, Ben Keating and Scott Hufficker are just a much better pairing in terms of AM drivers than Fritz Van Erden, Dylan Murray. And like, that's just... You can't really outdrive that if you're Guido Vandergaard, especially if you're going up against Mikkel Jensen, who might be... Well, he's going to Peugeot for the LMH, isn't he, Mikkel Jensen? Yep. Yeah, so, mm-hmm. you know, a future LMH factory driver. So it's a bit hard to overcome that uh, in terms of LMP2. Uh, GTD Pro, Corvette Racing taking the win. Uh, how do we feel about Corvette's GTD participation? Clearly that car is made for GTE regulations and has been balanced down to fit into a GT3 spec field. They didn't win by like a huge margin, but but how do how do we Trying feel? How do we feel? Oh, Chris can go because I've been talking a lot, but I, <laughs> I have some thoughts on this too. Okay, we'll let Chris go first and then we'll give the floor to Cookie. Uh, I personally don't mind it because uh, I know it's, it's just a stopgap uh, for their GT3 car. Uh, so we'll, I mean, for the next two years, we're going to see it. Um, and as of right now, because um, my concern was is that they're either going to make it too OP or nerf it completely. Uh, it doesn't look like that's happening. Obviously, Daytona, you know, first ever race with the GTD like trim on it. So I wasn't expecting, you know, P- Pulitzer winning awards here. Um Sebring, uh, I think Mirko Bertolotti with the TR3 Lambo, like they, they weren't off by a lot. I think they had a decent battle, um, maybe not towards the, the very, very end, but I believe they had a battle somewhere towards in the night. And then I don't think they won Long Beach. I think Heart of Racing did with the Aston Martin. And I, and obviously, um, it, I, be, I would be remiss. Corvette was one of the reasons that FAP had to retire because a wheel nut that came off the Corvette uh, went into the radiator, like the open spot in the hood of the Porsche. That It went into that part of the Porsche for FAP. Uh, and, and punctured the radiator, and they caught it on camera as well, and it just like yeah, yeah. exploded. That was, that was Long Beach Pacific. But yeah, I think, I think it's fine uh, for right now. I don't see any issue with it because it's a stopgap. Um, basically, and and I, it, you know, I think it really created this unique situation where Corvette, you know, were, were finally got into a full season of WEC because obviously they still wanted to race their GTE car, yeah, in, you know, in GTE spec. Like they're not going to let that money go to waste. Um, and so I, so I, th- I think it's fine. Uh. It, it's another car on the grid. It allows Corvette to stay in IMSA because uh, cor- no Corvette in IMSA is sacrilege. Uh, it, it can't happen. <laughs> um, so I, I, I'm glad. I'm glad it's there. Okay, I I agree with your last point that no Corvette in IMSA is sacrilege. Cookie, very briefly, what were your thoughts? I hate it. No, um, <laughs> it was good. I, th- I think it's fine, and I think this is another uh, segue from our previous conversation of a superior performance car being 
reduced in performance to a lower category in order to match it up. So mm. I think the car, there might be some awkward moments where it's not designed to go that, you know, with the tire or something um, as it's designed. But for the most part, it's probably set up to go a little bit faster than now it's running and pegging it back in certain ways is, is going to affect how it drives. But for the most part, I think their operating window is probably going to be the highest mm. in the GTD category. Um, you know, and the problem then becomes because GT3 BOP is so perfect, quote unquote, it's very difficult for cars to constantly keep passing each other and vying for position. A lot of it is just processional sometimes. So if you do truly peg back Corvette because they probably do have ceiling, potentially their car race weekends, you know, if you peg it back even a little bit, they might get heavily impacted, go back and qualifying and not be able to pass anybody. Yeah. So... I, I don't know. This might get more tricky as the season goes on if Corvette constantly is at the front all the time. Um, you know, and with Long Beach, it, it could have been another case of like, oh, Corvette's now on a streak. You know, how much is Corvette going to win? Um, but that wasn't the case. So we'll see. I, I, I think it could get tricky. Yeah. But at the same time, I think they're doing a good job. This wasn't the first, this isn't the first time IMSA's uh, dealing with something oh, like that because. Remember, well, when when a series merged, twenty fourteen they had Z four to to deal with to put in with all the GTEs, and then they had the M six GT three, uh, the balance with the GTEs, um, and because IMSA is a man more manufacturer driven, you know they had a BMW team, Ray Hall, Letterman, Lanigan, big IndyCar team, uh, that was there with BMW for the American Le Mans series for a while, you know they had the car. They had the money to pay, you know, they, they, so they found a way to let them in because, you know, that's two less cars on the grid and less one less manufacturer. So, and it, I, I, I think from, from memory, they didn't do a t- too bad of a job dealing with that. So I don't think this Corvette situation is going to end up differently. Yep. I, that's a pretty astute observation. Well done, Chris. Um, I, yeah, I, I tend to agree. GTD, uh, Great result for Cecilar Racing, taking a victory in the GTD class at Sebring mm-hmm. in the 12 hours. And uh, Chris, you were telling me earlier, they did it the hard way. It, it, they didn't have it all their own way, and they managed to pop out the end in a very good position. Yeah, so around six and a half hours left in the race, they kind of had an incident where they went into the tire barrier in turn one. I, they managed to drive off on their own accord, although their their rear wing... They got caught up a little bit in the tire bundle, and when the and when it finally released, they ca- kind of, you know, had a little boing, and, you know, bounce back and forth, reverberated, and you know, it, it was quite it was quite funny. Um, I want to believe it was Giorgio in the car when that happened, um, but basically, after that, uh, whenever Fuoco was in the car, he, you know, just like his last name in Spanish, he was on fire. Uh, he, he amazing stints from him. Um, controversial incident regarding him and the BMW of uh, Turner. I believe it was turn five where Foco was, you know, basically went to the inside. Probably, you know, he was probably way too far back for the move and basically um, touched the left rear of the Turner car by like the rear wheel and kind of turned him 
Uh, so people, you know, kind of got a little mad at that. But obviously, you know, since they're involved in that full course yellow, they drop back. But, you know, they had the full course yellows, the safety cars and the wave rounds to catch back up to the lead lap. And, and they, they, you know, they had to work for it. You know, they had a great, I think the last hours of the race, they had a good battle with AF Corsa. And I, I, don't, I don't know if it was shown on camera. Uh, I because at night they can kind of forget that GTD exists. Um, Classic, but it, yeah, but it was a very very interesting race in Chedlar. Uh, if you weren't if you weren't following the timing screens, you weren't even aware of the progress they're making. Unfortunately, I it's one of those things about being in a lower class is that sometimes you do just get forgotten, which is a shame. Um, but I do love the the personalities of uh, Chedlar racing. And the fact that they've come through and uh, gotten another win, another big win, uh, is is pretty damn exciting. They ended up winning by uh, about 49 seconds over the Gilbert Courthoff Motorsports uh, Mercedes um, of Skeen, uh, McAleer, and Junkadella. Uh, and then AF Corsa, as you mentioned, Chris, uh, ended up in third place. Um, we, we talk about the IMSA caution procedure plenty of times. Uh, in this instance, it's given an opportunity for a team that has had an incident to get back into the mix and show their pace and uh, you know get back on the lead lap and, and win a race. Is this the? I'm trying to I'm trying to pick my words very carefully here. Is is this the reason IMSA operates like that to keep more people involved? And is that a good or a bad thing? I I think it's definitely like an American thing because very, IMSA very uh, really reliant on its TV deal, and if you want more people to watch, you want to keep the races close and exciting. I'm not. It's clearly, obviously, because you have you know WEC and all the other series. You know they have full course yellows. They try to minimize the impact that any race interruptions can bring. Um, IMSA, now, yeah, I agree. Sometimes they can be a little bit, uh, they can jump the gun, so to speak, on full course yellows if a car simply just, you know, stops on track for like five seconds. And then, you know, as soon as the full course yellow button gets hit, they just, you know, resume on track. Um, but, you know, some people, you know, it's kind of a yin and yang situation. They could, I think if they could find out a way to, shorten because i do understand because i believe the prototypes and gts have to pit at separate laps um just to avoid a very very clustered pit lane safety um then they have the wave around it's it's kind of yin, yin and yang because yeah you do get closer races um as a result and the finishes to these endurance races they they always you know they never really disappoint um it's just the middle of the race can a little bit. It can be a chore to watch because you you finally get green flag racing, then it'll be full course yellow for another fifteen minutes. So it, it kind of ruins the groove of watching the race. And that I can, I kind of wish they had less full course yellows. Just maybe use actual like slow zones and you know mm. do it the European way. <laughs> um, and, and use the and use the safety cars was absolutely necessary. Then do the whole wave by, it would I think it would make 
the it'll, it'll be the best of both worlds. It would be it would ha- uh have the Europeans be a lot more happy, I think, be, for less interruptions, and then you'll still still have the TV you know crowd, mm. uh, you know, having close not uh, maybe not as close races, but closer races than yeah. the European counterparts. Yeah, I and it. Your your comment there about uh, IMSA sometimes being a bit trigger happy with full course yellows and uh, throwing them for maybe reasons that uh, um, that can be resolved a lot quicker um, than having a full safety car procedure in the pass buys and the pit lanes and all that sort of stuff. Um, something I noticed in the WEC race was the amount of times that Eduardo cancelled full course yellows when cars right, got yeah. gone. Um, I, I think it was there was there was two cars that kept stopping out on track. One of them was a GTE AM Ferrari, and the other one was a LMP2 car. I think it was the Inter Europol car um, that like would putter around for 150, 200 meters, come to a stop, and then it would look like it would cycle through the electronics and then restart and get going again. There was a few times where it looked like it was going to have to be recovered, but uh, Eduardo called a full course yellow approaching started the countdown and then cancelled it mid-countdown when the car got going again. So uh, it was very interesting to see the difference in philosophy from the WEC side where Eduardo was very happy to cancel full-course yellows if things resolve themselves versus what we have seen in the past with IMSA. Um, Final thoughts, lads, on the IMSA race and Super Sebring weekend. Cookie, at the track, what is it? Uh, 20 hours of racing? Is that... Is the Super Sebring the way that Sebring should happen? Is this the way forward for, for IMSA and WC as a shared weekend? Too much racing, man. Too much, man. Uh, it's fine. It, it's um, fine? Is it is it fine or is it great? I mean, I don't know how else you would kind of do it and be able, you know, like, because I thought it was fine and I could keep up with it. But yeah. apparently every other person couldn't in 2012 when they tried to combine all of them. So clearly I am the only person out of everybody that actually enjoyed that race. And yes, uh, actually, because it was a cluster again. F. Yeah. And I, I was fine with it. I could keep track with it. Or oh, you guys can't keep track of numbers anymore. Is that <laughs> like we're in sport? We're, we're sports car racing fans. How, how in the world do you like, can you not keep, we, we keep track of the Nürburgring 24 and they have like 40 different classes. What are you talking about? It's not that hard. Anyway, so we're clearly never going to go back to that, even though we should. Um, so we're, we're stuck with this. And uh, and WC clearly wants to participate in the North American event that is the 12 Hours of Sebring. Like, it is. You know, like, in terms of a sports car race, like, Jesus. I don't, like, Nürburgring 24, maybe, levels, uh, like, outside of Le Mans. Like, so anybody that's in, uh, affiliated with sports car racing, if they've never been to Sebring and go to Sebring, they're like, I want to be, I want to take all of my stuff and throw it at Sebring. So, like, this is all just the culmination of just, uh, like, the, the the only choice you have. So, yeah. I don't know. It probably could work better back-to-back weekends or something in terms of logistically, but you wouldn't be able to get all the fans to come back for each one. So, this is the best that they can do. Maybe they can move the Sebring race to Sunday, but that's just asking crazy amounts for people. Um maybe it would be cool to do it where they like they were originally going to do it where they were going to like start it at midnight run it to, to 10 or something 9 a.m have the race end and then start the 12 hours of sebring that would be 
awesome. I would love to see that. Otherwise, I this is this is great to answer your question. You I you am, got there in the end. I'm proud of you. Um, <laughs> I am gonna get a lot of hate for this. Have a have a WC. So see, I am in. I am in the mind that we should harken back to the good old days. Um, I think we should have a WEC race at Coda, maybe like in April, like a week, a couple weeks after Sebring. That way you can, because when the classes, when, you know, convergence happens, um, you have, I would think you would have more top teams willing to do the actual 12 hour, you know, the prestigious one. Um, Because with the WEC race, obviously they're going to focus on the WEC. That's the championship they're in. If you don't have the WEC race that same weekend, you might entice some more WEC teams to to come over and try the 12 hour, which that's what happened in the past with Audi and Bujo. Um, So I'm more in that kind of mindset because I would like to see like, I would like to see like Pujo come back to Sebring for the 12 hour, you know, Toyota, if they, if they want to have a crack at it, you know, it, it's, I, I would like to see that happen. Yeah. That's a good point. We, we do have top cast convergence happening next year. So there is a possibility of a few of these teams doing either double duty for the WEC or crossing over. So uh, it'll be interesting to see what happens with this event in the future. That's all from the Super Sebring weekend. We do have just the European Le Mans series opener to chat about at Paul Ricard. First thing I want to say, holy crap, what a good race. European Le Mans series turns it on. Guys, is the European Le Mans series the best sports car racing series at the moment? Michelin Le Mans, uh, 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 the cup series, Michelin Cup. Yeah, Le Mans Cup. No, yeah, yeah, Le Mans Cup. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's really good too. That is really good too. Is it better than ELMS, though? No. no. I don't think so. It, the Michelin Le Cup was still good, though. Um, Definitely worth checking out. Watch the Michelin Le Mans Cup, but ELMS, oh my god. <laughs> yeah, it was it was fantastic. I mean, the whole weekend was great, so uh, the Michelin Le Mans Cup was great, and yeah, ELMS, I was actually planning on, because I, I missed it, well, missed watching it live, so usually with that, I'm like, alright, well, I'll watch the whole thing, and then Maybe fast forward through some like you know full course yellows that kind of stuff that I don't need to watch it. But I ended up watching like probably three and a half hours. So I mean, did it you, was a great race. Did you watch I, the end? I, yeah, I mean, I, no, no, no. I just in total, like yeah. I, I didn't do very much fast forwarding. I was, I was pretty much watching the whole thing. So it was an absolute. Yeah, it was a great race. It was an absolute, uh, just like smorgasbord of a race. You had stuff going on in every single class. It got really messy at the beginning. There were like three or four safety cars in the first hour and a half, mm-hmm. which split the strategies into pieces. And we basically spent the whole rest of the race trying to piece together where everyone was in relation to each other. And come the end of the race, uh, in two of the classes, there were like last lap battles to the line. And it was it was f- a phenomenal climax um where do we want to start in terms of the the last lap sort of things we'll come back to lmp2 at the end but where, where do we want to go first lads let's, let's start from the bottom up let's talk gte first yeah so gte um it looked for the early part of the race 
that the Iron Dames were in a really, really good position. Um, Sarah Bovey in her first stint was just passing cards for fun and got to the head of the field. Um, but then they started to fall back a little bit and it was the, it was the Rinaldi racing car that ended up, uh, pushing its way towards the front ahead of the pair of Proton Competition Porsches. And the battle to the line between Jimmy Bruni in the Proton Competition Porsche, and I think it was, um, was it Gidley in the car at the time, or was it Verone? No, it was uh, Verone. It was Verone in the car at the time. Yeah. On on failing tyres up against Jimmy Bruni, his defensive effort in the last 15 minutes of that race in order to hold uh, Bruni behind, and in the last two laps, Bruni was right on his bumper. What an absolute, just incredible way to start off the season in GTE M, or GTE rather. Yeah, GT was an amazing fight the entire race. Like, just battles everywhere, um, you know, and very good, clean racing. A lot of storylines, um, great AM drives, great pro drives. And then, yeah, at the end of the race where it was that close at the end, it was a culmination of a great four-hour event, especially to start the, the season. And Rinaldi Racing taking, I think that's their first victory in uh, in the European Le Mans series. Is it their <laughs> Pardon me. Is it their first uh, race win in uh, ACO competition? They might could could have they won Asian Le Mans because they were in that last year. That's true. That's true. They were in the Asian Le Mans series, so it's not their first race in um uh in uh what am I trying to say? ACO competition, but it was still a bit of a surprise. You look through the field in GTE, and you know you got your likes of. Your Spirit of Race, your Kessel Racing, your Iron Links, your JMW, your Protons, those big names that have been around for ages. And Rinaldi have kind of come from the um, the SRO side of things. So for them to be immediately on the pace and winning races and like the return of Mamo Gidley as well, like storylines are plenty in that. It was it was a, a, quite a surprise for them to be so so well matched, in my opinion. Yeah, in, in, in Mamo Gidley, because... Um... Elephant Room, his 2014, I believe, Daytona wreck, yeah. where he absolutely just slammed into the back of a Ferrari. Um, Haas, I, can't, I don't even remember how much, how, uh, how long he was in the hospital. It was, it, it was a very, very long road to recovery, and he just he, he he didn't really start racing until like a year or two ago. It took him that long. Um, he started doing small stuff like the United States Touring Car Championship, which is basically like a club series out west um, that just calls themselves the United States Touring Car Championship in a Corvette. Uh, oxymoron, uh, very confusing lines um, in that statement. Um, then he raced GT America with the Bentley, with, uh, which was, I believe, uh, helped run by Flying Lizard Motorsports. And now... He's coming over in, I believe he raced, raced LMP3 in IMSA, and now he's doing ELMS. And, I, you know, I would, I would be, I think it would be safe to assume that would be his first European Le Mans series win. Um, yeah. It's, it's it's absolutely a great story. Uh, and also, you know, having, being as an American, uh, very awesome to cheer for an American driver that isn't, you know, controversial or problematic. <laughs> um, yep. It it, it it was it was a, it was a nice story, and the fact that um, Verone just held off Bruni that hard because Bruni didn't really get to the back of him until like what three laps to go. Yeah. So 
at least he at least he didn't have that stress, you know, the, throughout his entire stint. But I couldn't imagine what it was like behind the wheel. It was it was an epic display of of defensive driving, and they had basically another full lap once the the uh, LMP two and LMP three drivers. Uh, cross the line because they were just ahead of the leaders, which meant that it was a bit like the battle in L- uh, the battle in GT rages on. Um, so they got basically the full last lap to themselves, which was quite exciting to watch. Um, I want to put out a big shout out as well to the first podium for uh, this driver in ELMS competition, Michael Fassbender. He got a podium with the number ninety three car um, with Zachary Rubichon and uh, Richard Leitz. He was on point through the whole race. And at one point, he managed to pass three GT cars down Le Mistral Strait just by getting a great run through the traffic that was passing him um, as the other two guys, uh, as the other cars got balked. He he looks like he's found his feet in the GTE car. He did have a spin, but this this must be good um, for the fans of Fassbender. It's going to look great when they do the, um, the Road to Le Mans documentary. Is this the year that we, we see Fassbender at the front of the field taking taking race wins? And do we see him at Law? I think we see him at Law. Um, taking race wins, maybe. Uh, you know, he still had some spins. Um, you know, he got up to third in class and then spun, dropped on the 10th at one point. So, um, you know, he definitely is looking more confident behind the wheel. So whether that interprets to you know, like sustained confidence. Um, we'll see. Um, it's, but it's all, all good, good and positive signs. I mean, you know, we're, I think we're all talking about like, you know, how good he could potentially be and how much can we look into how well he performed here. So if we're, if we're talking like that, especially about an actor, uh, turned racing driver, that's not a bad assessment for, uh, your first, you know, kind of real foray into the competitive side of the field in the class that you're in. So, um, just a yeah, a round of applause to to him um, for that effort. I mean, it's taken a lot of work, and yeah, sure, it's been documented by Porsche along the way. But um, I mean, it, he's not driving in slouches, so it, it definitely is uh, was was noticed. I would say. And it, let's let's think about this for a second because you mentioned he had some spins early on. What if he didn't have those spins? That 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 car finished like eight seconds off from the lead. Um, so, and it doesn't surprise me because, um, Zachary Robichon and Richard Leitz is in that car, both very good drivers. Cause if you remember, Richard Leitz doesn't need no explanation. Zachary Robichon won the IMSA GTD championship with FAF last year. If Fassbender can clean up a little bit, you know what? Sound the alarm championship contender. Absolutely, oh. absolutely, and in a very, very good GTD class or GTE class as well. Um, I do want to correct myself. It's his second podium in LMS competition. They took second place at Algarve in the season closer last year, so this is a continuation of some very, very good form for Fassbender. Um, picking up the third place. Uh, a shame for Iron Links. They just dropped off the podium. Um, and then there were a few hard luck stories through the field. I think uh, JMW didn't have the best of races. The second Rinaldi car didn't have all that good a race. And uh, one of the Oman TF Sport cars got uh, bonked on the first lap and uh, was recovered by a, a, a quad bike um, to get pulled back to the pits, which was a little comical. That was hilarious. Yeah. yeah. That's that's peak ELMS, right? Recovered by a quad yeah. bike. Um, mm-hmm. Let's talk about LMP3 next. And 
Again, a huge field in LMP3. Um, a bit of attrition as well. Uh, problems for the cool racing car that got pitched into the wall after same corner, which was a bit scary, but the driver there managed to get out unscathed. Um, Euro International had an absolute shocker, but the story of the race really was the the last stint battle between the the second cool racing car, the number 17, um, Matt Smith... Uh, uh, oh, I don't recognize these names by the initials, um, which is... <laughs> a bit amateurish of me. My apologies. Um, it is uh, Mike Ben, I'm sorry, Martin Jakobsen and Maurice Smith um, battling to the line with uh, the inter-Europol car of uh, Charlie Cruz, uh, Gilliam Oliveira, which I know that I've messed up uh, saying his name, and Nico Pino, went down to the last lap, got... Uh, all the way to the very end of the race, I think the uh, the cool racing car made the pass on the last lap of the race, but it was all immaterial in the end because the number 13 car got disqualified, <laughs> which was unfortunate. Um, leaving that aside, great battle in LMP3. Great to see LMP3 class get a bit more exposure in that sort of, uh, sort of light. Uh, is it a worry, though, that it's only effectively the, the Ligier in LMP3? Are we seeing an orification of the LMP3 class? Yup. Yeah. I, I mean, so. it, it. I mean, I heard multiple times about like them talking about, you know, and and it's a good thing what ELMS, especially the broadcasters, are doing to try to also encourage more questions on some of the streams and stuff to get it more involved. But a lot of it was like, well, let's do some LMP2 and LMP3. Oh, well, you know, um, are there different chassis LMP3? Like, what are they? They're talking about it, and it's just kind of this like elephant in the room. They're not really like, they're like, oh yeah, the other two manufacturers, uh, Ades and um, and um, Duquesne Janetta. and Janetta, yeah. And and you're like, oh, okay, all right, well, like you know, it's just it's the same kind of thing. And I don't know. I mean, we might see the Duquesne show up at some point. Well, uh, the- well not the Duquesne, but the uh, Ades. Uh, we might see that, but I mean, there's what. One Janetta running for the last two years. That's pretty much been it. Yeah, um, and, and well, the the Ades is not at the same level as the Ligier, the Janetta, and the the Duquesne. Um, it is a little disappointing to me to see that the Duquesne hasn't really gained a lot of traction with customers. Um, the Norma that preceded the Duquesne um, seemed to be a good alternative choice to the Ligier, but it seems that that has not continued with the upgrade to the LMP320 uh, regulations. Yeah, I think there was a moment in time where people were thinking, okay, well, Norma's bringing in a, a different chassis. And, you know, for the time that it was for the previous regulations, you could tell that Ligier seemed to be better than the twisty bits. Norma was better than the straighty bits. Um, and so I think there was that part of it where, um, okay, fine. Norma is not to the l- level of Ligier at the time when they started doing them P3, um, you know, in terms of the thought process, but, um, you know, they would still be able to provide a superior product and they'd be able to, you know, they'd be able to beat Ligier. So, but I think over the last four or five years, it's been hammered home just how consistent that Ligier is, how better the product is because they just have the overhead to, uh, to supply all these mm. teams with all the parts necessary for it. Um, so I think you're seeing a lot of that being like, okay, we might've run Norma before and now they're Duquesne and they still probably have a decent product, but if everything's evened out and, you know, 
even if they might have a slightly better chassis, but Ligier has better everything else, I'd rather run Ligier. Yeah. I think that's that's mm-hmm. what we're seeing with this. And, and that's like, a very good point because it kind of reminds me in the rally scene in the United States, there might be better cars out there, but a lot of people go with Subaru because they have the parts, they have a much better support system. Mm. You're going to have an easier time running with them. Um, and another point, um, I want to say unironically, the most diverse LMP3 lineup right now is in Prototype Cup Germany, which is a newly launched prototype series that's basically only LMP3s for now. But you had you had like two Genettas. Uh, Conrad was one of the customers racing them. Uh, then you had a few Duquesnes mixed in in there as well, as, as well as the Ligiers. Um, so, and there's an article on Daily Sports Car saying, well, there's some teams, you know, they have the cars. We might as well give them somewhere to race where it's low pressure, get themselves more familiar with the cars before they make that step up. So maybe with time, we might see some of those more, maybe we'll see a little bit more diversity on the, uh, Michelin Le Mans Cup slash, you know, LMS grid, you know, with these teams from Prototype Cup Germany that aren't already in the series. That's a great point, and we will keep tabs on that. I'm sure you will, Chris, and you can relay that back to us throughout the, the seasons coming and see where those drivers and teams have come from. That, that It would be nice to see a little bit more um, variety in P3 and in P2, but of course... Uh, we have seen the convergence of the Orica 07 as the dominant platform. Speaking of P2, it was a really, really good race filled with battles. But uh, to me, the fact that the the strategy calls through the safety cars in the early part of the race played into an entirely different uh, set of options at the end of the race is what I love about European Le Mans series and sports car racing. And you've got to say, what an incredible result for not only, A, the race winners in Prema Racing, doing a WRT, taking their first race in the European Le Mans series, um, but also Algarve Pro Racing, a dual silver lineup, Sophia Flersch and Bent Viscal, coming home in second place through some great strategy and a shortened uh, a shortened last stint, to, to which placed, placed them exactly ahead of third place in the, sec- uh, in the Panis Racing car. Algarve Pro Racing, we we kind of we ripped into them a bit last year through a, a series of like pit lane mistakes, strategy mistakes, driver management mistakes uh, in the European Le Mans series particularly. But this is a a great uh, a great performance by the the family owned squad, and it's a incredible sign of what might be to come from those guys in the European Le Mans series and in the WEC uh, guys. What can you say about Argyle Pro Racing and that that dual silver lineup winning a second place? The field looked really good. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I don't. Know. I mean, they it, um, it was a very good run for all of them. Um, but yeah, I was I was mainly wrapped about you know maintaining or at least seeing how Sophia was doing because it was I don't know. I think that's um, you know I I think I'm. I'm ready for there's just there's been so much of uh, em- uh, emphasis especially on on women drivers and stuff like that. I really want to see one of them really start to break through and and have good runs, feel comfortable, be in a good spot in the team and potentially compete for wins. And I think yeah, this is um you know, this is good signs for them because I think there's there's more to be had here if they can continue the success. So, but great to see them have a podium. 
And I think there's some good omens out there to that because uh, not sports car racing, but in TCRs just in the last couple of weeks, Jessica Hawkins um, won in a TCR UK race that supported the British GT Championship. And that field was, you know, around 20 cars. And then you had just a Jessica Backman just uh, yesterday at the time of this recording, Saturday, uh, ADAC TCR Germany um, winning that race. So uh, already a good year so far. Hopefully we'll see some more success, especially out of the European Le Mans series. Uh, maybe Iron Dames can grab out a solid result. Um, yeah, just, just hope, hopefully because, uh, you know, I think – the year, because if you remember last year during Le Mans when the um, Richard Neal team had an incident, I believe the Eurosport team didn't didn't really exactly help favors. Um, I think they made some jokes um, about you know haha women drivers. Mm. Uh, based the simple simpli- that's basically the simplicity of it. So hope hopefully we'll see some good results and uh, who knows maybe we'll see Sophia Florsch and Le Mans winning LMP2. Uh, in the near future that that would be a quite a step up um from uh where they are at the moment i mean like a great way to a, a, a great performance from the team i think i'm trying to find the explicit analysis i can't really find it at the moment but i remember seeing somewhere um that the the difference between bent's times and sophia's times were effectively negligible they were basically the same driver running in the car over the course of their stints and that was their consistency that was able to propel them up the grid as well as being on a slightly different strategy to give them that clear air to run in that consistency so a great work by algar pro to put them in that position and yeah the the it's it's great to get representation of women in motorsport whether that be driving or in the teams or in the media or in the uh, as the engineers as well there there was a few comments that the um the commentators focused on a few of the engineers in the iron dames team like pointing them out and saying the whole point of the iron dames program is to show women and young girls that this is a viable career path and to bring those people into the sport which i think is a is a very important thing so Good job, good job, right. LMS, and good job, Iron Dames and Algar Pro for for promoting women in the sport. Right, and, and uh, Giddy Giddy Tire has that same program at the Nurburgring. They have, I believe, there's a TCR, and then there's like a GT4 where it's like an all women crew. Uh, so it's just it's not just the LMS, not just ACO. I'm glad it's being paraded uh, in more different series now. Two things I would actually like to point out. Yeah. Um, during during the race, um, the United Auto Sports LMP2 22 to be exact, uh, had a nine lap stint, then mysteriously went back in the pit road. Uh, we couldn't, we didn't know the issue for the longest time. Uh, confirmed during the week, uh, it was because of a puncture. Uh, oh. That's why they had that short stint on track. We could have been seeing a very uh, more different we could see a different result than what we we would have had here if that problem didn't arise another thing uh so the tds car that started on pole position um matthias besh and um can you hear here um uh vanderhelm yeah they were the two fastest drivers on the grid and then as soon as they handed the car to simadomo dropped like a rock 
that is the the beauty of Pro-Am Motorsports, though, isn't it? Uh, in the end, they finished in 10th place, and they were the third car in Pro-Am, but that is, you know, part of being a Pro-Am team and part of having a bronze driver that you have to tutor and carry through through a race. And, you know, the, the fact that they were... The fact that Simodomo was given the opportunity to race at the head of the field for a little while, that would have done huge things for his confidence and his ability and and you know it's all about these baby steps like remember it would have uh, you know Fritz van Erd was this driver that we were talking about losing huge amount of times and he's one of the most consistent bronzes going around now and I'll, I'll just put uh yeah um new name that I, I would assume many people have not heard before so probably his first time in such a big race like this um, I believe he was also slowest on the table as well. So it was kind of just, just a yin and yang thing for that team. They had the two fastest drivers, but unfortunately, you know, the way the cookie crumbles, they had the slowest one as well. Yeah, and I guess that's that's just part of how how racing goes, truth be told. A pretty exciting race overall, though, to start the season. Pretty exciting race uh, in all three classes, which is what you want from a European Le Mans race. Had a bit of drama, had... Uh, uh, battles all the way to the line. Um, next round for the ELMS is at Imola, um, which is a racetrack we've seen European Le Mans series before, um, but mm-hmm. not for a few seasons. Imola is a circuit that's renowned for being very difficult to pass. What are we expecting from the European Le Mans series at Imola? I mean, bonkersness. Bonkersness? Yeah. Yes. The last time we went there was, I believe, 2016. And that was the year when uh, basically the entirety of the last hour was ran as a full course yellow safety car because of a huge deluge of rain. Just, just went, just fuck. Try not to swear. <laughs> a huge, a huge deluge of rain just absolutely showered the track. Um, I trying to remember who won that one. I believe it might have been uh, a Tyrie by TDS. Uh, Speaking of the devil, um, yeah, Rio Hirakawa was part of that team. But just one of the drivers that just stood out in my, in my memory. But yeah, so hopefully we'll see a green flag finish um, this time around. Um, unfortunately, um, it, it kind of clashes with a lot of other sports car races that weekend. Yeah, let's let's talk about that <laughs> briefly. Um, so. That's the LMS. That's the uh, the fifteenth of May. Um, also on that weekend is GT World Challenge Europe. I think. Yep, uh, Magni Core the sprint. Also on that weekend is uh, the Bathurst Twelve Hour, um, which I will be at. Which will be the first time I'll be at a racetrack for two years and a bit. So I'm very excited about that. There's nice. other there's other racing on that weekend as well. Isn't IMSA on that weekend as well? Yeah, that's going to be a stacked weekend of racing there uh, for the 15th of May. I did say it. I had to say it. And OT, but um, it's related. Uh, MotoGP will be at Le Mans that weekend as well. Oh, cute. That that is always a a good race for MotoGP as well. So that's that's plenty to look forward to. WC at Spa will be uh, soon as well. Whenabouts is the WC at Spa? That'll be it's the seventh of May, so two weeks time. Yep, and that same weekend, as long as we're here, uh, there'll be the Nurburgring Twenty Four qualifying races. There'll be a uh, three-hour race on Saturday evening, 
I believe they're running it towards the evening hours, towards night. Then they'll have another one on Sunday. Um, basically just a ploy, you know, basically, you know, fans haven't been around a lot. So we're going to give them more on track action in terms of, you know, more practice and qualifying for, you know, both of the days. So, you know, that's, 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 that's basically the only reason why they're doing the split format. Yeah. But yeah, so you get Spa WEC, which only clashes with like an hour of the qualifying race on Saturday. And then you get another three hour dosage of the Nordschleife on Sunday. And yes, it's important to note that the Spa race is on the Saturday, so don't don't mess that up. So we'll, we'll keep everyone abreast of that. Um, we've already made mention Insa and Laguna Seca this weekend. That's the next period of races coming up. Um, guys, thank you for thank you for being back. Thank you for, for for coming back and doing this. It's been it's been too long, and hopefully life can sort its doo doo out, and we can do this more often again. Because bloody hell, I've been missing doing this. Well, yeah, we, we, we keep doing this. Much coming up, I'm sure we'll be in the booth plenty more, plenty more times before that. Absolutely, and in this as well, uh, thank you for coming back and listening, um, and thank you to our sponsor, the RacingLine.app, your motorsport calendar, for sticking with us as well and not pestering me to to keep making episodes. Because shut up, it's been hard, okay? Um, but <laughs> very, pardon me, very appreciative to have their support again this year. Um, make sure you get onto the racing line to uh, plan out your motorsport watching adventures because as we've made very clear, there is a lot of stuff happening very, very shortly in the world of motorsports. Um, guys, it, soon we'll be talking about Le Mans. It, it'll be six weeks that we'll be, we'll be talking about Le Mans and, and the, the, the 24 hours. And uh, yeah, doesn't that just make you a little terrified? Time moves too fast. It, it moves too bloody quick. Um, and on that note, thank you very much for listening. I've been Michael Zalavari on behalf of Austin Zetsman and Chris Washer. Peace out! Gazoo! Sagazoo noises because they lost the T-Ring, but gazoo! <laughs>